Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 38, Genesis chapters 44 and 45. Well, let's go ahead and continue the story of Joseph as we move our way through Genesis. I want to warn you that in a couple of weeks we're going to be coming up on chapter 48. And while it's never good to take a small section of Bible by itself, 48, 49, and 50 are one of the most amazingly overlooked sections, perhaps, of all the Bible. It tells us why things are the way they are today. And I would encourage you that even if you have friends that have not found their way here yet, bring them for this, oh, about one month long or so, uh, teaching on Genesis 48, 49, and 50. Um, I, if you pay attention to this, it can change. It can change how you look at everything going on around you today in the world. But let's go on with Genesis 44. And as we do, I want you to do something for me. Everywhere that we see Yosef, Joseph, dealing with his brothers. I'd like for you to mentally picture Yeshua dealing with us. Okay. As we're going to see, Joseph is a kind of Old Testament version of Jesus in more ways than immediately meets the eye. No, I'm not in any way suggesting that Joseph was kind of an earlier incarnation of the Word. Rather, I mean that he was a type. Joseph is used, in particular, to create a pattern after which the Messiah is going to follow. Now, naturally, because Joseph is but a mere man, he cannot hold a candle to the essence and the nature and the stature and the holiness of Yeshua HaMashiach. But we can learn some valuable principles about Yeshua from what we read of Joseph. The trick is to recognize patterns while avoiding allegory. So let's read Genesis 44 together. Genesis chapter 44. Then he ordered the manager of his household, fill the men's packs with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money just inside his pack and put my goblet, the silver one, just inside the pack of the youngest along with his grain money. He did what Yosef told him to do. At daybreak the men were set off on their donkeys, but before they were far from the city, Yosef said to his manager, okay, now go up and after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the goblet my Lord drinks from? Indeed, the one he uses for divination? What you have done is evil. So he caught up with them and he said these words to them. 
they replied, Why does my Lord speak this way? Heaven forbid that we should do such a thing. Why, why the money we found inside of our packs, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. So how would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever one of us the goblet is found with, let him be put to death. And the rest of us will be my Lord's slaves. He replied, fine, let it be as you said. Whichever one is found will be my slave, but the rest of you will be blameless. They each hurried to put his sack down on the ground and each one opened his pack and he searched, starting with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the mm. goblet was found in the pack belonging to Benjamin. At this they tore their clothes from grief. Then each man loaded up his donkey and returned to the city. Now Yehuda, Judah, and his brothers arrived at Yosef's house. He was still there. And they fell down before him on the ground. And Yosef said to them, How could you do such a thing? Don't you know that a man such as myself can, leave, can learn the truth by divination? Judah said, There's nothing we can say to my Lord. How can we even speak? There's no way we can clear ourselves. God has revealed your servant's guilt. So here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one in whose possession the cup was found. But he replied, heaven forbid that I should act in such a way. The man in whose possession the goblet was found will be my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah approached Joseph and said, please, my Lord, let your servant say something to you privately and, and don't be angry with your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, my Lord, we have a father who is an old man and a child of his old age, a, a little one whose brother is dead so that of his mother's children he alone is left and his father loves him. But you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I can see him. And we answered, my Lord, the boy can't leave his father. If he were to leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. So we went up to your servant, my father, and told him what my Lord had said. And, but when our father said, go again and buy us some food, we answered, but we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down because we can't see this man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went out from me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I haven't seen him since. Now if you take this one away from me too and something happens to him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol with grief. So now... If I go to your servant, my father, and the boy isn't with us, seeing how his heart is bound up with the boy's heart, when he sees that the boy isn't with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol with grief. For your servant himself guaranteed his safety. I said, if I fail to bring him to you, then I will bear the blame before my father forever. Therefore, I beg you, let your servant stay as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. Let the boy go home with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father if the boy isn't with me? I couldn't bear to see my father so overwhelmed with anguish.
despite the questions that the circumstances surrounding this banquet that was served to the eleven brothers must have inspired in them being invited to dine in the home of the second most powerful man in all Egypt the incredible coincidence to them of their being seated in exact order of birth okay, the strange offering of this royal portion five times as much food was given to Benjamin they got the grain they come seeking, they packed up their donkeys and they left at the first light of the next morning. And they likely figured that their ordeal was finally over. Hardly. Just as before, Joseph had each brother's money placed back into the sack of his grain, a grain bag, but a new twist was added. Joseph's silver cup was placed into the mouth of Benjamin's sack. No sooner had the brothers begun their journey home then Joseph's house steward sent by Joseph catches up to these Israelites and once again accuses them of stealing from his master and the brothers are dumbfounded I mean the house steward tells the eleven exactly what Joseph had instructed him to say and that is why have you repaid me evil for good and why have you taken my goblet or cup from which I make my divinations now first Let's address the cup. Actually, it was a bowl, a silver bowl. And the master of the house in Egypt in that era, if judged to be a sage, a seer, all right, had a special bowl from which he and he alone drank. But it was also used for the purpose of divining messages from the gods. Okay. Now, one can only imagine how Joseph must have come by this diviner's bowl. Likely it was a gift from the Pharaoh because Joseph was undoubtedly, after accurately interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, de determined as the highest and best sage diviner in all the land of Egypt. Okay. Now, typically, a bowl like the one you see here in the slide was filled with water and then gold or silver objects, amulets, sometimes with magic inscriptions written onto them, were put into the water. And from the reflections in the water, then the seer would make his predictions. Well, it's unimaginable that Joseph actually used the bowl for anything except to drink from. But to keep up the appearance of being thoroughly Egyptian, he used the common knowledge among the people of the bowl as an implement of divination to continue to test his brothers. And by the way, notice that we never hear a word about the brothers questioning of whether or not Joseph was an Egyptian, which he was not. Okay, So why not? I mean, why don't we hear the brothers wondering why Joseph doesn't even look like an Egyptian? I mean, Egyptians, after all, are not Semites. They're from the line of Ham. Right? And their physical features are quite different from Semites. The most obvious being they're darker rather than olive-colored skin. And once again, in this, we have this illusion 
um, this hidden allusion, if you would, to the Hyksos rulership over Egypt at this time. The whole of the Middle East would have been quite aware of this political situation in Egypt at this time, whereby Bedouins, Semites, had conquered and were now ruling Egypt. So it was of no surprise at all to these Israelites from Canaan, these Semites, that the vizier of Egypt looked physically a lot like themselves, even though he dressed in more typical Egyptian garb and adopted Egyptian customs and traditions. Because the brothers well knew that Semites at this time were ruling over Egypt. It was just common knowledge of the region. Well, in response to the accusations of stealing the divining cup of the vizier, the brothers boldly announce that they are so sure that this cup is not among them that they that should the house stewards inspect their grain sacks and find it, that not only will they offer themselves to be slaves to the master, but that the one with the cup should die. Now, it's very interesting to me that seemingly every time it becomes necessary for one or all of these Israelite brothers to prove their intent or honesty on a matter or need to resolve a difficult situation, death is the answer. I mean, they killed all the males of Shechem for raping their sister. They decided to kill Joseph, but only sold him off to slavery, figuring he wouldn't last very long anyway. All right. uh, Judah ordered that his daughter-in-law Tamar be burned alive for her supposed fornication and dishonoring of Judah's family by her out-of-wedlock pregnancy. Reuben offers his own children's lives to Jacob as retribution should anything happen to Benjamin and it goes on and on and on and on. I mean, what this shows me is that up to this point in their lives, at least 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had very little respect for life. All right, and utterly no understanding of God's moral principles at this point. Well, the house steward refuses that offer, but he does order that the guilty party will bear the punishment. And that punishment will be enslavement, not death. And of course, to add drama to the situation, the house steward, already knowing exactly where that cup was, because he put it there, begins this long, drawn-out inspection, you know, which he goes through all the act, all right, inspecting these grain bags, starting with the oldest down to the youngest, where he finally finds it. He gets to Benjamin's sack, he opens it, and there's that glittering, polished silver bowl, which sends the brothers into a frenzy of disbelief and confusion, and they tear at their clothes, it says, in anguish, because they know what this means. Benjamin, their father's favorite, may be lost. It'll probably kill old Benjamin, old uh, Jacob. Verse 14, however, kind of marks a turning point in the character of at least some of the tribes of Israel. Notice that all the brothers returned with Benjamin to Joseph's house, and they didn't have to. Once the bowl had been found, all the brothers except Benjamin were free to go on their way and return to their families in Canaan, but they didn't do that. Rather than solve their problem the way they had so long ago with Joseph by abandoning him, 
they decided to stay with Benjamin and bear together collectively whatever fate awaited them. And it was Judah now who acted as a spokesman for all the brothers. The Judah who confessed that it was he that had done wrong and not his pregnant daughter-in-law Tamar. The Judah who offered up himself as surety for Benjamin's life to his father Jacob, Israel. So Judah now confesses all to the vizier, Joseph. And he tells him, follow me carefully on this, that while they're innocent in that they did not steal his cup or his money, that indeed they are guilty before God. Guilty for their many wrongdoings. Guilty for selling their little brother into slavery. Guilty for deception. Guilty for grieving their father nearly to the point of death. And so Judah, the most humbled by life apparently, of the eleven brothers, does in small measure what his greatest descendant, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, will do in infinite measure in the future. He offers himself up to pay for the sins of the brothers. Now I want to take a moment to show you some characteristics now of Joseph and how he reacts to all this. And even his relationship to Pharaoh that may help us in some small measure to understand Jesus and his role because it has long been understood that Joseph was a type of Messiah. Well, in verses 9 and 10, when Joseph's house servants accuses the brothers of taking Joseph's silver divining bowl, the brothers said that whoever is found with the bowl shall die and all the other brothers will become Joseph's slaves. And the response to this offer is this. No. Only the one who did the deed is responsible. The rest may go in peace. Now, here we have perhaps the greatest principle of salvation in Christ. You are responsible only for your sins. Not for the sins of anyone else. Okay. Further, no one else can pay the price for your sins. Your sins are on your head. Okay. Was your father an abuser? You're not responsible for his sins. Was your mother mean and self-absorbed? You're not responsible for her sins. Is your brother a criminal? Those are his sins. They're not your sins. Are you rebellious? No one else but you is responsible for your sin. This, however, is all kind of a new good news, bad news kind of deal. Because although you aren't responsible for the sins of others, <clears throat> neither are others responsible for your sin. You must bear your own guilt. And since the wages of sin before God is death, your death, your eternal death, what's to be done to escape this fate from which there seems to be absolutely no hope? Well, a little later in verse 16, we get this profound speech from Judah. And another great principle of salvation is brought to light. Judah admits to Joseph that it is useless to plead innocence before him. Because even though they didn't commit the crime of which they had been accused, stealing that silver bowl, 
In fact, they were guilty of other crimes. Crimes that they thought had been well hidden and virtually unknowable. Okay? Crimes long past and nearly forgotten. Crimes of the heart and the soul. Okay? They were infested with guilt. They were infested with sin. And as a result, they lived sinful lives. And despite their outward appearance of honesty and integrity and their earnest pleading of innocence, all that they were, all they had done, has now been exposed by God. Okay? This is exactly the position we have before Jesus. Joseph says to Judah, how is it that you think you can hide anything from me? Don't you know I practice divination? What is divination? Okay. It's the supposed power of the gods to help the human diviner discern hidden things. Okay. Divination is man's attempt to be like the gods. Now, most of the time, it's just a hoax men perpetrate on other men. At other times, men have turned their lives over to Satan, who has given them certain insights in exchange for their souls. At times, God gave the power to divinely discern to his prophets. Jesus says there is nothing about us that's hidden from him. All the evil and deceit that is in us is exposed to him. And how does Yeshua know this? Divination. Yeshua, being divine, knows everything there is to know about us. Okay? Things we don't even really know about ourselves, he knows. Okay? Where does Yeshua get this power of divination? Simple. He's divine. Okay? Then in verse 18, we're presented with a principle that can fly right by us unless we open our eyes to it. Judah, in paying homage to Joseph, says this. You who are the equal of Pharaoh. Oh, how key this is. Okay, Look at Joseph's position in Egypt. He was appointed to power by Pharaoh. Joseph was given authority to wield all of Pharaoh's power by Pharaoh. Okay? Joseph is so connected to Pharaoh that he is essentially the equal of Pharaoh. But is Joseph Pharaoh? No. The Pharaoh still exists and he is the highest of the high. Joseph is the vizier, but Pharaoh was still Pharaoh. This was put here that in addition to knowing this important piece of history, we might understand a little better the relationship between Yeshua and Yehovah, between Jesus the Son and God the Father. There is at once, mysteriously, this equality, this oneness, this, uni this unity, this ichad, between the Father and the Son. Yet, there's a kind of subservience of the Son to the Father. Okay. Joseph wielded the full power and authority of Pharaoh, but he was not Pharaoh. 
Yeshua wields the full power and authority of the Father, yet Yeshua is not the Father. Okay. Joseph was the ruler of Egypt, so Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt. All right. Yet Joseph was not Pharaoh. Yeshua is God, but he's not God the Father, he's God the Son. And the Son is ultimately subservient to the Father, just as Joseph was ultimately subservient to the Pharaoh. I mean, do you see this? Okay. The relationship between Joseph and Pharaoh is an earthly demonstration of the heavenly spiritual relationship between the Word who became flesh, Jesus, and the Father of all things, Yehovah. Of course, the picture presented now all right, in Joseph and Pharaoh is not flawless nor perfect. All right, because the physical can never fully represent nor explain the spiritual. But it is a correct picture as far as it goes. So here in Genesis 44, as in all the first of the five books of the Torah, we see this glaring messianic foreshadowing that quickly brings to mind what Jesus said as it was written in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed. I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass away from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. When Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, but to complete, it can in its most literal sense, in the Greek word pleru, I have come not to abolish, but to fill full of meaning. The Jews right up to this day study only the Old Testament, the Tanakh portion of God's word, which Jesus himself studied. Okay. And all the greatest Jewish religious leaders and scholars and rabbis, both ancient and modern, who, have, who, who must have read these passages in Genesis about Joseph in Egypt and Judah offer up, offering up his life for his brothers, oh my, thousands of times, so many missed the ultimate fulfillment of it, sadly. In fact, all of the Torah and the prophets were certainly understood to be true, but the ancient Hebrews thought it was more about Israel's history and God's laws and commands than about God pouring out his heart and about explaining the need for and the characteristics of a coming Messiah and about a personal relationship with God. And it was Yeshua who would, who would fill the Torah and the prophets full of meaning. Not just by explaining it, but by living it and fulfilling it. It was Yeshua that the Torah and the prophets pointed to beginning with the book of beginnings, Genesis. Okay. He didn't come to replace the old with the new. He came to bring the Older Testament to its fullest God-intended meaning and purpose through the newer. And of course, Yeshua is the new covenant. Now the Lord's Prayer as instructed by Jesus in Matthew 6, which, by the way, is but part of the long discourse that we today call the Sermon on the Mount, okay, is given to us as the best and greatest model of how to pray to the Father of the universe. Okay, but remember, it's not that we pray, that Jesus taught us to pray to Jesus, rather we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. 
Okay? We pray to the Father by means of Jesus. Okay? We only have standing to pray to the Father because we're in union with Yeshua. Okay? Jesus didn't pray to himself, but to the Father. Okay? Even the prayer begins, Our Father. But if there be a second best example of what our attitude of prayer ought to be, it has to be Judah's plea. Right here in Genesis 44 as he lays prostrate before Joseph. He confesses everything. He acknowledges his lack of understanding. Okay? His helplessness before the greatest of, of masters. His guilt, perhaps not of what he was accused, but his absolute guilt beyond measure, nonetheless. He acknowledges that in vain did he try to hide his sin and evil deeds, but the master was able to divine it all, so it was futile. He intercedes for others, his brothers, Benjamin, his father Jacob, whom he now loves and values above himself. He pleads with complete honesty of soul. He offers himself up a substitute for what was due the others. And now the question, of course, this all begins to lead us to at the end of chapter 44 is, how will the master, Joseph, receive these pleadings? Will he rightfully mete out justice for the great guilt of those who are bent over in hopeless anguish before him? Helpless. Well, Hold your breath, right? because what we'll see at the beginning of the next chapter gives us the answer to this. And it's put there to show us the way that Jehovah, Creator, God of Israel, is going to respond to yours, mine, and our pleadings before him from our position of absolute, undeniable guilt. So let's go now to chapter 44. Uh, rather, chapter 45, Genesis. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 45. At last, Yosef could no longer control his feelings in front of his attendants and cried, Get everybody away from me. So no one else was with him when Yosef revealed to his brothers who he was. He wept aloud and the Egyptians heard and Pharaoh's household heard and Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph it is true that my father is still alive but his brothers couldn't answer him they were so dumbfounded upon seeing him and Joseph said to his brothers please come closer and they came closer and he said I am Joseph your brother whom you sold into Egypt but don't be sad that you sold me into slavery here or angry at yourselves because it was God who sent me ahead of you to preserve life. The famine has been over the land for the last two years and for yet another five years there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me ahead of you to ensure that you will have descendants on earth and to save your lives in a great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. 
and a lord of all his household and a ruler over the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and tell him, here is what your son Joseph said. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You will live in the land of Goshen and be near me. You and your children, your grandchildren, flocks, herds, everything you own, I will provide for you there so that you won't become poverty stricken you, your household, and all that you have because five years of famine are yet to come. Here, your own eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is my own mouth speaking this to you. Tell my father how honored I am in Egypt and everything that you have seen and quickly bring my father down here. Then he embraced his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all his brothers and he wept on them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The report of this reached Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers have come, and Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, here's what you're to do. Load up your animals, go to the land of Canaan, take your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you good property in Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Moreover, and this is an order, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt to carry your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Don't worry about your stuff because everything good in the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel acted accordingly and Joseph gave them wagons, as Pharaoh had ordered, and gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave a new set of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave seven and a half pounds of silver and five sets of new clothes. Likewise to his father, he sent ten donkeys loaded with the finest goods Egypt produced, as well as ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father to eat on the return journey. Thus he sent his brothers on their way, and they left. And he said to them, Now don't quarrel among yourselves while you're traveling. So they went up to Egypt, out of Egypt, and entered the land of Canaan, and came to Yaakov, Jacob, their father, and they told him, Yosef is still alive. He's ruler over the whole land of Egypt. He was stunned at this news and he couldn't believe them. So he, they reported to him everything Joseph had said to them, but it was only when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him that the spirit of Jacob, their father, began to revive. Israel said, enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. Well, last chapter. We saw Judah pleading before Joseph for mercy. Confessing his guilt before God for his actions. Asking to be the one upon which all payment for offenses against the master, Joseph, be extracted. Offering himself up as a substitute for his brother, Benjamin, so that his father Jacob wouldn't be grieved to the point of death. Now because all we have studied now since Genesis chapter 40 concerning Joseph is a foreshadowing of the Messiah, we are approaching that pivotal moment in scripture that will tell us just how the Lord God of the universe hears and reacts to our pleas for mercy. And it is shown to us in the form of how Joseph reacts to the pleas of his older brother, Judah. 
And chapter 45 tells us that Joseph simply could no longer contain himself. So he dismissed everyone that was around him that he might be alone with his brothers. And then he just broke down and wept. With weeping so violent, with his body heaving with the intensity and a range of emotions pouring out of him like a dam bursting, his crying out could clearly be heard outside of his home. I mean, what he felt we can probably all to some degree identify with. Okay? These were tears of deep pain, finally released, of relief as well from an ordeal that had come to a, such a poignant conclusion after all these years, of gratitude of being reunited with his family, of sadness seeing his brothers eaten up with guilt, but at the same time such joy having witnessed them embrace repentance. And of course, this gave Joseph the opportunity to forgive. But Joseph also wept for he knew the things he longed for long for the most were at hand. He was soon going to be back in the presence of his beloved father. Oh, what similar but greater spectrum of emotions that Jesus must have felt as he hung there on that cross. His life draining out of it. As he suddenly felt that full burden of this immeasurable crushing weight placed upon him for the sins of every human that ever had or ever would live. As he absorbed the divine wrath of his own father and righteous judgment for the sins that he bore but not one of which were his. Okay. And how long he remained silent. Okay. Choosing to endure for my sake and your sake until he sensed the conclusion was just moments away. And then in agony and in victory, he couldn't contain himself and he cried out, Jesus did, in a voice so loud and powerful and filled with such pain, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabatani. God, God, why have you separated yourself from me? Those people gathered all around him up on that hill hid their faces in awe and fear, and the six-inch-thick veil that hung in the front of the temple split from top to bottom. But Yeshua knew, just as Joseph knew, that soon he was going to be back in the presence of his father. His mission was accomplished. God's will was done. What his brothers had done to him for evil the father had used for good. Joseph saved Israel's physical life. Jesus saved Israel's eternal life. Israel's and all the families of the earth who would be joined to Israel's covenants. One thing was left to be done. Joseph now ordered that his father and all the clan of Israel was to be brought to Egypt that he could care for them. And as of this time, only the first two years of the seven-year famine had passed, and the next five were going to get worse. Okay. When Jesus died, he instructed his disciples to feed my sheep. Okay. Just as Joseph had forgiven 
his brothers, the fact remained that the famine was ongoing. Okay? When Jesus left, there was going to be trouble in this world. Its condition of evil and malevolence was going to continue, and it was going to get worse as the years went on, not better. When Pharaoh heard of the coming of Joseph's brothers, he was pleased for Joseph and rewarded Joseph's loyalty and his service with the order that wagons were sent to be sent to Canaan to bring Israel's clan and all their belongings back to Egypt and that they were to be given the best of the land to live in. Okay? And of course, Joseph had already determined that the land of Goshen, up in the Delta region of Egypt, was going to be the most suitable place for them, and undoubtedly he had suggested as much to the Pharaoh. The father has prepared a place for Yeshua's brothers. Okay. All who have accepted and kept the faith in Yeshua. He is ready to welcome all who will come and will send for us at that appropriate moment. A moment that I think is pretty close. Now the land of Goshen as a place for Israel was not an arbitrary choice. It was good, excellent action, uh, actually, pasture land, perfect for grazing sheep. But just as important, it was well away from the bulk of the Egyptian population, which started around the city of On and then was on south from there. And the deal was, see, that... Um, the Egyptian population despised sheep and shepherds. Okay, the Egyptians' preferential meat was cattle, not sheep. And they considered shepherds to be the lowest class of people. Now, this was going to prove to be a boon to the Israelites because for the next hundred years or so, they were going to be left alone up there to prosper and multiply far and above their Egyptian hosts. Later, however, the jealousy of the Egyptians against the Israelites' preferential treatment and prosperity was going to lead to their persecution and their enslavement. Now, in true Oriental tradition, Joseph sent valuable gifts back to Canaan for his father and enriched each of his brothers with Benjamin once again getting that royal portion of five times as much as the others. Now, one can only imagine that this royal treatment by Joseph upon Benjamin likely continued all of their lives. Okay? And it could only have served to make Benjamin's with his relationship with his brothers somewhat strained, I would say. Okay? In fact, I suspect that the instruction of Joseph to his brothers in verse 24, do not quarrel on your journey, at least was partly due to the highly favorable treatment Benjamin received and what the brothers might think to do about it. I mean, after all, these were the same men all right, that 20 years earlier had deposited this teenaged Joseph in a dry well due to nothing more than that Joseph was showed favoritism by their father. This do not quarrel, I think, is kind of a strange inclusion in this story. Yet, because the story of Joseph is such a model of what was to come in Messiah, okay, the, the story would be missing something without the admonition of Joseph's brethren not to quarrel. 
Because this is what is expected of the brothers and sisters of Yeshua, us, as we're on our journey with God. I mean, he, as do all the apostles, beg us, don't quarrel. Okay? But to have a oneness of spirit. Not a million bodies in one mind, but a million bodies in one heart. Okay? Unified not by consensus, but by means of our union with Christ. And wow, have we ever failed him in that one. Okay. Well, upon their arrival home in Canaan, they reported to Jacob that Joseph was alive and in fact was the ruler of Egypt. And is it any wonder that Jacob didn't at first believe these sons who had proved to be of such dubious character? I suspect his first thought was, what kind of a trick is this? All right, and for what gain? But with the appearance of the wagons and the gifts, he was convinced of the truth of it all. And verse 27 says his spirit was revived. Jacob, after all these years, you know, had never really recovered from the loss of Joseph. And it had taken its toll on his countenance. But now, with the news that Joseph was alive and well, he was filled with peace. The painful past was forgotten. And his life was once again complete. Let's get into Genesis 46 next week.